This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. David Strain has been with us on campus this week to talk with our students from Colossians 1 and 2 about the nature of pastoral ministry. He's senior pastor of Main Street Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Mississippi, in the PCA. He has served as the pastor of London City Presbyterian Church in the Free Church of Scotland in central London. He holds degrees from the University of Dundee, the University of Glasgow, and the Free Church of Scotland College, New College, Edinburgh. David has contributed articles in the Scottish Bulletin of Evangelical Theology, various internet sites, and is in process of writing a commentary for the Lectio Continuous series. And he joins us now in Office Hours. Hi, David, and welcome to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. We are so glad to have you on campus, and I know the students have been very enthusiastic. They had you up late last night. Yeah, peppering you with questions about pastoral ministry, and, and you've had lunch with them, and I had a chance to spend some time with them. So we're grateful for that, because I know that they value an opportunity to talk to you and, and about life in the pastorate. Well, it's been a joy and a privilege. I've enjoyed getting to know some of the students and catching up with old friends. Tell us a little bit about your path to Main Street Presbyterian Church. Somehow, for some reason, I guess that you are not a native Mississippian. I don't know why I think that, but I just, I have this intuition. I have a gift. Yeah, I'm not a Mississippian. I was raised in the Church of Scotland, which is the mainline Presbyterian, the National Church. And I <laughs> I came out of the Church of Scotland, shall we say. Not easily. Not easily, over a number of theological issues there with which I was not in agreement and found myself in the Free Church of Scotland. Just a joy there very much at home, a confessional denomination, and was called to be the pastor of London City Presbyterian Church, which is the Free Church's congregation in downtown London, England. And I think I heard you preach there. Is that right? You were there? I think so. And I know Bob Godfrey heard you preach because I remember him coming back and saying that he had heard an outstanding young minister preaching in the Free Church congregation in London, not far from city centre. I do remember him being there, actually, and he was a very kind it was a very hospitable congregation. I remember having lunch with them after the service, and it was a lovely service, singing the Word of God. Singing the Scriptures, praying the Scriptures, unaccompanied, exclusive psalm singing. And it was glorious. Well, it can be glorious. It can also sound—it can be terrible, too. <laughs> well, it's true. I have heard Scotsmen sing the Psalms, but it's a joyful noise. It is a joyful noise. I always remind people that God seems to be much more interested in things that don't seem to interest us. We're more interested in aesthetics than I think God is, at least judging from Scripture. When I was ministering in London, unaccompanied exclusive psalmody always seemed to me to make us unnecessarily odd. That's what people say here, too. Now that I'm here, I look back on our regular singing of the Word of God and the psalms in particular and realize just how precious... There's a piety and a warmth and a, a realism, that's right. Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the soul. And actually, one doesn't appreciate just how much of an impact singing the Psalms regularly has until one is no longer doing it as much. They're grounded in the history of redemption. They're very concrete. They're very particular. They're not vague. They're not abstract. They're not ethereal. And so they force us to reckon with the whole of redemptive history. What are we singing? 
and they point us to Christ in a surprising way. Yeah, so they, they push us into the Bible, they, they push us back and forward in, in redemptive history. And so very rich and very special thing for me and something that will always live in my memory and in my heart and as a part of my own piety for which I'm thankful. And we hope it's not entirely in the past. Not at all. Actually, it was a, it was a condition of my coming to Main Street that they buy Salters. Oh, very good. And I'm not convictionally an exclusive psalmist, but I, I think the scriptures require and command the singing of the word of God and the singing of the psalms. Every Lord's Day assembly of the people of God, the psalms should be sung. Hmm. And I would even say that the psalms set the template. If we're to sing anything else, they should be psalm-like. Hmm. The psalms are the model given by God for our corporate congregational praise. The songs, if they are that in the New Testament, are very much like the psalms. Yes, they are psalms. They're psalms in structure and in the theme, and they do the same things the psalms do. Even the songs in the Revelation that are explicitly named as such are shorter. But they use the same old covenant categories. and Exactly. So it's always interesting to me when people say, well, we're in the New Testament and, and that was then, this is now, and we need to sing Christ-centered songs. And then I think, well, at least the picture we have in the Revelation of what's happening, if that's supposed to instruct us in some way, yes. it is interesting to see what they're apparently singing. Yes. And sometimes we set up tests that Scripture doesn't seem to be interested in meeting. Yes. Of course, there are the debatable Christ hymns and fragments of other material yeah. in, in the New Testament where the name of Christ is named and mentioned. Yeah, and we should oh, sing those too, I think. Sure. But you're right. We don't find, I come to the garden <laughs> in the morning in Scripture, however. That's, that's quite correct. Yeah, no blessed assurance in the Psalms. There's a difference. You're listening to, You're listening office, to hours. office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. Let me back up before we get you all the way to Main Street. Can you just reflect a little bit so people have an appreciation of what it was like for you to be in the mainline Presbyterian church? It's the Church of Scotland. It's the national church. It was your church, and you were a part of it, so you, you didn't leave easily. So Americans should think of the PCUSA, which is isn't a national church, but it's an established, old, socially acceptable denomination, influential, wealthy denomination, as opposed to the smaller, more marginal sideline denominations. So there you were in this, and then you were out. And that didn't happen easily. You had to take a stand. I don't think you have to go into it into great detail, but give the listener a sense of what happened and what it was that caused you to take a stand and suffer for the cause of Christ. Let me say, first of all, that I love the Church of Scotland still. That might be hard to understand. It's like family. It is. And it's the National Church. It's where I grew up. It's where my discipleship was given its formative structure. My heroes, in terms of models of pastoral ministry, are every one of them Church of Scotland men. And they continue to be. I'm deeply indebted to the Church of Scotland. And my heart today, if anyone knows about the current state of the Church of Scotland, they will know that for conservative evangelicals, for confessional people, today in the Church of Scotland, it is an extremely hard place for them to be. And a, a number of men are suffering 
quite significantly. And it's getting harder by the day. It's getting harder by the day. Some probably are aware of St George's Tron and, and the clashes that are going on in the centre of Glasgow as they seek to transition out of the Church of Scotland and similar things that have been happening in the PCUSA for some time regarding property and so on are, are happening and that, that brings with it challenges. So there's real suffering there and every one of us has to come to the difficult personal decision of when is it time to draw a line in the sand when we're a part of a theologically mixed denomination among whom there's a strong conservative contingent I think it's too easy to stand outside of that situation and sort of lob grenades at those who've remained, and I certainly don't want to do that. All of that by way of preface to say that my experience in the Church of Scotland had been thinking about my mentors and examples and heroes and saying, well, they're Church of Scotland men, and that means I can I can be one too. But the particular course of training for me involved me in internships with some lovely female ministers. You're not speaking aesthetically. You're, you're talking about personal qualities. Personal qualities. Personality-wise, they were they're, they're fine, pleasant, caring individuals with whom I had a good relationship, but with whom I could not have disagreed theologically more thoroughly. And that came to a head in my last placement and my last internship and questions of women's ordination, working with people who did not confess the Apostles' Creed. I, I I didn't want to overreach and ask Reformed ministers to subscribe to a Reformed confession. Just the creed will do. And that found its way to a presbytery and found its way to various committees. And I was asked eventually to resign quietly as a candidate for the ministry. And I felt in the end that if I resigned quietly, it would merely be noted on the floor of presbytery. I am not a pugilist by temperament. I'm, I don't like fights. I instinctively want to shy away from them. But I felt at that moment... I had a, an obligation to myself and actually to the church not to simply go away quietly, but to to say, no, I'm standing where the historic church has stood. And if I'm to be gone, you will have to remove me. And that will allow others who profess to concur with my position to dissent from the decision of presbytery at least and clearly distance themselves from this and also sort of be a testimony and, and reveal where we've gotten to. And so there was the most painful moment of my life up to that point at a presbytery meeting where a statement of my views was read out. It was a very carefully spun statement. It was not a faithful articulation of what I thought and it was designed to shock and provoke and make me appear like a troublemaker and a, a dangerous agitator and agent provocateur. That's never happened in the history of American <laughs> Presbyterianism. The PCUSA has never, ever done that to yes. any confessional ministers. Of course, I'm being ironic. <laughs> I'm referring back to J. Gressa Machen in 1929 and the kangaroo court by which the mainline church drove Dr. Machen and a number of other faithful men with him out of the church, so... So in the end, I was removed as a candidate from the Church of Scotland and had to face the question, am I even called to the ministry? Maybe this was, was all that the Lord had designed and intended and other avenues very quickly began opening up. The Free Church of Scotland were a, a very warm, welcoming, spiritual home. It was like chains had fallen off, someone had turned the lights on, burdens were removed. I was home with people who 
loved the Reformed faith and wanted me to preach Christ. This is the thing I was getting at. This isn't abstract. This isn't just word fighting or doctrinal fighting for the sake of it. But this is about the ability to take the Word of God in one's hand as a minister and stand in the pulpit and say, this is what God says. And Jesus is a historical figure revealed in the Scriptures. People need to believe in him, and they need to listen to him, and they need to hear his Word with faith and obedience. And what's happening, not only in Scotland, but in mainline denominations all over the world, not just even in the West anymore, but across the globe, is that word is being removed from God's people. And there are people sitting in the pew, and I'm thinking of older saints who have said to confessional men, after hearing a confessional sermon, a biblical sermon, after 40 or 50 or 60 years, I haven't heard that kind of preaching in 40 or 50 or 60 years. So the gospel is being removed in some instances from people. So this isn't theory or even politics, as tempting as it might be to say, well, this is just a... It's a power struggle, yeah. No, not at all. And actually, it's not just liberal versus conservative either. So when I came here, this was a stunning comment to me, but a dear older saint said, I'm satisfied for the first time in many, many years because you're preaching the Word of God, the text. We cannot take that for granted because that doesn't happen everywhere and all the time. We can't just assume. And she had been in evangelical and Presbyterian churches where it wasn't that the gospel of grace wasn't being preached, but there there was not a desire to say, look at verse 1. This is what it means. This is how it points us to Christ. Here are the imperatives and the indicatives. This is how it will arrest your heart. And here are the changes it will bring as you submit to its ministry in your life. And now look at verse 2. The continual, contextual, careful exposition Christ-centered even. Now we have four points, so (laughs) exposition of the Word of God. Mm. And that's a a precious thing. So I don't want the listener to think that this is just about politics. And also, I wanted the listener to understand, as they listen to your talks that are on the website, that when you talk about suffering, that's not theory. It comes out of personal experience. So there's a reason you have some gray hairs on your head. (laughs) And so, in the providence of God, you were called from London to Main Street Presbyterian Church, Columbus, Mississippi. And tell us just a little bit about Main Street PCA and about Columbus, Mississippi. Planted in the 1820s, it was originally a a mission to the Choctaw Indians, and in what was then called Possum Town. It was a, a little trading post and is now Columbus. Which is a beautiful old... Yeah, little antebellum... Antebellum city, home to... Lovely little town. Some very famous writers, Eudora Welty, Welty. Mm -hmm. Tennessee Williams. And the wonderful architecture and culture there. So it's a beautiful little southern Mississippi town. One of the challenges for us of being in London, we adored London and and we loved the congregation. The pace of life, the cultural artifacts in London were just so enthralling to us and we, we loved being there. But it was very isolating. The congregation was spread all over the city. It was a commuter church, a backpacker church, actually. Not only were people commuting to attend, but they would only be with us for six months, maybe a year or so, and then they'd move on. So the church was constantly in flux. 
very transitory. Very much so. So it was exhausting. We were very isolated. We were one of only one or two other families with children. What would often happen is that young couples would come to London, settle down, have children, and then find that with young children, the hour commute to church to come to us was exhausting. There was an evangelical church down the road with wonderful ministry to families and young moms and and children, and they would end up the gravitational pull of that would be too strong and one by one they would all leave and we would be on our own and so that that had just worn us out so when we came to Columbus here is this little town people often ask about how do you make the transition it must have been very challenging actually it was wonderfully healing for us to be embraced in a community to be known to be able to drop by or to have people drop by on a whim and be be able to connect relationally and to be among the flock and to, to love them and to be a part of their lives and for them to be a part of ours. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Early on in your tenure there, someone in the congregation noticed the minister walking somewhere yeah. and they were concerned <laughs> that maybe they hadn't but provided for a week, I think, sufficiently for the minister. Yeah. There he is walking. He, there must be something. His, his <laughs> car must be broken or there must yeah. be something wrong. Yeah, they, we had walked around the corner from our home to the bank and someone had seen us passing and they phoned us up just to check if we were okay. And we thought, well, we, we've now arrived in the but United States. The, the interesting thing is, you know, they saw you, they knew you, they were able to express real concern. And they were actually ready, although it's humorous, they were ready to try to help us immediately. And those are my people. I understand yes, that. Yes. And, and that was, it was wonderful to me and, and is still. So I often say to the congregation and to friends who ask about the congregation that they make it very easy for me to love them. So there's a real connection there. And that's a, a beautiful thing. Well, you began your academic life as an art student. Yeah. And you ended up a minister. Mm. Talk a little bit about that transition. You're painting pictures in both instances, but they're different pictures and you're using different tools. I was not raised in a Christian home, nominal Church of Scotland home. Billy Graham was coming to do a crusade in Celtic Park, big soccer stadium in the east end of Glasgow, not far from my home, and it was creating a, a real stir. I had a friend who was sharing the gospel with me. I remember thinking, even before I had really repented of my sin and received and rested upon Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel, that if I am to follow Jesus, if this is all true, I cannot simply keep it to myself. I, I have to tell people. I want to preach him. I remember as a, a teenager thinking, I want to do what Billy Graham does. I want to preach to people about Christ. If this is true, it's the most extraordinary thing. It has to be proclaimed. So I, I, I just sort of filed that away thinking, well, every new Christian must think like that. And 
in the providence of God, I went off to art school and trained to be a fine artist, did portraiture. And while I was there, I was involved in student ministry and had opportunities to teach. And so the student ministry staff workers encouraged me and and sort of took me under their wing and, and gave me other opportunities to teach. And so at the same time as I'm in art school, that sense of desiring and having now opportunities to open the word of God was beginning to happen. And people in art school began gradually to come and say to me, are you going to be a minister? You're going to be a preacher, aren't you? I actually remember being quite surprised at the sort of resonance that had with me, thinking to myself, you know what? Actually, we'd love to preach Christ. And so all the way through art school, I'm I'm beginning to wrestle with this. I love fine art. I've never had such extraordinary conversations with people who are wide open to talking about worldview and philosophy and big ideas as I did during art school. These were people who were gentle, thoughtful, philosophically engaged. It was wonderful. All the while the Lord is working on me and and actually helping me to think critically. Part of being an artist and training for art is to think about culture and about cultural artifacts like painting, sculpture, and so on. What are the philosophical ideas they embody? How do I relate to that? How do I communicate those ideas myself? And so I was actually beginning to think critically and learning how to communicate and to evaluate ideas in a way that I found when I when I finally submitted to the call of God in my life to preach the word and began to train in seminary, I discovered that all of that was not lost. It was not a mistake. In the providence of God, actually, it equipped me. I had an advantage over some other students. I was I was already thinking in precisely the terms I was now being taught that I should think when I approached the word of God and when I approached other ideas. The Lord was preparing you during your undergraduate education. You didn't know it. Sure. But he was. All of that preparation, training, experience, all those skills, ways of thinking he brought to bear. It shows how stupid I can be, really. Of course he was. How could it be otherwise? We have a gracious and sovereign God who calls and equips men to serve him and in his sovereignty. All that he was doing in my life has, at least as one of the ends in view, furnishing me to fulfill the call that he has given to me for the good of his church. It's a good discussion because some of our listeners are perspective seminary students, college students, and other folks thinking about their future and trying to figure out how they should work through these issues and how they should think about calling and what does it mean, you know, if I went to school and trained to be an engineer, and now what does that mean if I go off to seminary or I worked in computers or whatever it was, or medicine or law. We've had students from a wide variety of pre-seminary backgrounds. And so the Lord uses all of that as part of his preparation for pastoral ministry. You know, in my case, the creativity that is temperamental to me and is part of what perhaps led me towards fine art has continued to find the expression I like words. I find the process of producing sermons a very creative process. And I, I feel like I'm using some of the same creative juices in ministry that I used in producing a body of work for a show, for example. Um, I still like to paint occasionally, but uh, I find nothing is so satisfying to me than preaching the Word of God. Mm. Yesterday, you talked about three S's in pastoral ministry from Colossians 1 
and a little bit of Colossians 2. Quickly go through the three S's, and the listener will want to listen to the talk himself online, but just to give the listener a stimulus to go. I started off by saying, being Scottish, we'll begin with misery and, and work from there. So the sermon, the three <laughs> sermon headings were suffering, struggle, and stress. There's part two, it's not nearly so miserable. Yeah, <laughs> uh, But part, part one, I, I really, I think when I, when I was preparing, I was asking myself, if I were back in seminary, what do I wish I had someone tell me by way of realistic preparation for the challenges of pastoral ministry. And it struck me that one of the biggest was just how much ministry can hurt and how much it can cost. And one of the places in scripture where we see the Apostle Paul be very direct about that is in Colossians 1.24 and following, where he talks about rejoicing as he suffers and fills up in his flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ and struggling with all his energy which he so mightily inspires within me for the good of his flock and and the stress of seeking to shepherd the flock knowing that there are those who abuse and prey on the people of God using as Paul says I think in in 2.5 plausible arguments to lead them astray and so suffering struggle and stress are really part of the reality of ministry and they're offset by the joy of seeing that having endured so much in love for Christ and love for the flock, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And, and at the end in 2.5, he says, I rejoice to see your good order and that you're standing firm in the faith. As John puts it, I have no greater joy than that I see my children standing firm in the faith and, and growing and bearing fruit. That's a wonderful thing for a pastor's heart. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And then today you addressed another set of topics from just a, a little bit further on in the passage. Remind us of the points. So yesterday was the trials of the gospel ministry, and today we were thinking about the tasks of gospel ministry. And I really do feel like I should get bonus points for the consistent alliteration <laughs> yeah, let's in, hear both, them. in both talks. Today they were a double stewardship. So Paul speaks about himself in 123 as a minister of the gospel, servant diaconus of the gospel, and in 124 as a minister of the church. He uses almost the same phrasing to talk about that in both instances. A double servitude, rather, a double servitude. We're ministers, servants of the gospel and of the church. Then there's a, a divine stewardship, of which I, Paul, became a minister, according to the stewardship from God given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. We are stewards. As ministers of the word, we are under authority. We're not our own. We have been given order. So Paul in First Corinthians talks about, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. If I do this of my own will, I, I have a reward. But if it's not of my own will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. I must. And then the last point, there's a definite strategy. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. We must preach Christ. We must do it with pleadings and warnings. We must be hortatory as well as didactic, evangelistic, as well as catechetical. So warning and teaching. How do we relate the proclaiming function of the ministry, the catechetical aspect of the ministry, and the warning or elenctic aspect of the ministry? How do we connect those without losing each of them or letting each of those wipe out the others? 
And that's a great question. And, and in many ways, that's the struggle of the preacher's constant task. And in the background of my mind, as I ask the question, is Westminster Confession 19.6, where it talks about the use of the law, but not such that we, that true believers are put back under the covenant of works, which can easily happen when we talk about the warning, for example. It's a careful line to walk. There's the first use that drives us to Christ. I have found personally the most valuable resource in parsing the relationship of law and gospel to be the marrow of modern divinity. An extremely valuable way of expressing things. So in the marrow we'll talk about the law drives us to Christ, but then we receive the law back from the nail-pierced hands of the mediator who has borne all its sanctions. So it's now no longer, all the curses are gone no longer a covenant of works. He's, he's satisfied and fulfilled that covenant for me. This is the stuff that animated people like Thomas Boston and the Erskins and so early Scottish Presbyterian dissenters. And this volume, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, is not actually a modern volume. It's from the 17th century, about the time of the Westminster Assembly. Yeah, and so I receive back the law now from the nail-pierced hands of my mediator as a rule of life understanding that he gives, along with the law, the grace more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And so there's dangers in preaching in both directions. I must not use justification and the glories of Christ's fulfilling the obligations of the covenant of works for me and bearing the sanctions of the broken covenant for me to pull the teeth of scriptural imperatives that, for example, in the latter half of many of Paul's epistles, Paul can be very direct in laying upon his hearers. We mustn't say, as we read them or preach them, here's what the text says we must do. Now, of course, none of us can do that. Praise God that we have Jesus. Amen. I think Paul wants us to understand that unlike our condition before regeneration, the people of God though still totally depraved, are no longer totally unable, but are enabled more and more. And so they can say, oh, how I love your law. And so I want to be bold in proclaiming the call to holiness, but to do so clearly against the constant backdrop of the full provision of God in Christ for me, that I may rest on him and be enabled more and more to obey. That's a careful line to walk. Sure. And not unto perfection in this life. Absolutely. And even as we seek to obey, we come against the law. I mean, we run up against it and we realize, well, I haven't kept it. I haven't loved God with all my faculties. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself, which then in turn again, even as believers, drives me back to Christ. Finally, as we bring this to a close, talk a little bit about what it means to be a minister of the Word of God. What is ministry to you when you think about ministry? What's the essence of it? What characterizes it? And encourage maybe as we go, a pastor who's listening and who's a little discouraged. Maybe it's a Monday when he's listening to this. And uh, maybe he's thinking about something that was said that maybe wasn't intended to be hurtful, but was. Or maybe he's thinking about things he should have said from the pulpit that he didn't say. Or maybe a session meeting, a consistory meeting, or an upcoming presbytery meeting, or a council session, whatever it is that's on his heart, encourage him a little bit. I'd want to say, dear brother, preach for the smile of Jesus Christ. How easily 
we find ourselves seeking the praise of men or the affirmation of men. We're tired. We're pouring ourselves out. We love the flock. We want their welfare, but we become vulnerable. We're just longing for some evidence that maybe I'm making a difference. And so slowly, subtly, the evil one begins to shift our focus, our motivation for continuing to stand in the pulpit Lord's Day by Lord's Day, to weep with those who weep Monday to Saturday from preaching for the smile of our master for his praise and his renown, preaching as worship. I think it was John Piper who talked about expository exaltation, and I think that's a wonderful phrase. I'm to do this as my calling first for the renown and the honour of my master's name, and I have joy in serving that end. But when I begin to see the reason for my ministry as therapy, I keep doing it in the hope that someone will say something nice to me so that I can begin to feel better about me. I'm actually setting myself up for burnout. So we have to keep doing mid-course corrections and keep saying, I lift my eyes to the hills, from whence doth come mine aid? My safety cometh from the Lord, whom heaven and earth hath made. I'm going to look to Jesus. I'm going to look to Christ and I'm going to pursue his glory and find my joy in honouring him whatever men say. That's hard to do. That requires Lloyd-Jones's great business about talking to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. We need to preach Christ to ourselves and appropriate him and then seek to serve him for his glory. If that's what our people most urgently need, it's also what we most urgently need if we're to serve them well. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.